This season on Three Things, we're zoning in on one theme, peak performance. What does it take to achieve greatness? How do you maintain it? And how do you continually find areas to improve in every area of your life? People are driven by different things. To me, the great peak performers out there are the people that are driven by this notion of there's always another gear. There's always a way to get better. It's two people, 20 minutes, and three things with Rick Elias. He's the owner of the largest private car dealership in the U.S. and the most dominant NASCAR team owner in history. Rick Hendrick is so good at racing that NASCAR had to change their rules just to give others a chance to win. He's known for finding unique competitive advantages, inventing entirely new technologies to get ahead, and for never slowing down regardless of how dominant and victorious he's become. Talk about finding your next gear. This is Three Things with Rick Elias. Rick and I met maybe about three years ago. Um, we're neighbors, uh, but it's been a fast and furious, no pun intended, friendship. We, we actually share a meal probably once a month, and it is a safe place for both of us to, uh, to be able to talk about a lot of things. And he's been, uh, in only three years, a very dear uh, relationship for me, and I'm super excited and humble that you're here today. So welcome to Red Ventures. All right, Rick, um, let's, uh, let's start from the basics. How, how did you get into the car business? Well, I grew up on a farm in Virginia, and my dad was a tobacco farmer, and I didn't know what I wanted to do in life, but that wasn't it. And uh, so I, I worked on cars, and I raced since I was 14. And I was going to school in a, a program at Westinghouse and NC State, and I was working in a service station, to make extra money. And I met a wholesaler one day and I was you know, repairing cars. And uh, he had this Opal he wanted me to put a clutch in. I said, I've got to go to class. He said, well, I'll take 300 bucks for the car. So I looked in the NADA book and had an $800 loan value. So I borrowed the $300 from the, get, from the station manager, bought the car, and then I was working on an engineer, one of the professors, Jags tuning it up, and he said, you know, I'm looking for a car for my wife. And I said, well, I've got this Opal that's got an $800 loan value. And I was going to tell him I'd take that for it. He said, well, I'll give you 1200 for it. And I said, well, I need to start selling them and stop working on them. So, uh, but uh, then I met a dealer, and at 23, I, I was uh, general manager of an import division up in Raleigh at Leith. And then I got recruited by GM in 1960, 1976. And so that was my first dealership. And I raced boats. I held the world's record, won the national championship. And uh, so my two careers have kind of come along at the same time, the automobile business and the racing business. And I started with five people in the automobile business. Today we have 11,000. And uh, I started with five people in the racing business. There's 650 over in motorsports. So the two companies, uh, you know, have grown together and with the largest privately held dealership group in America. So uh, I, it's just been lucky and a passion being able to do what I love. There's so much there to talk about, but let's, uh, I, I, want, I want you to get the story out. You, you were uh, thinking or you were studying to be an engineer, right? Right. And you ended up being a car salesman. How yeah. did that happen? And we didn't make my mother very happy, but uh, no, it was, when I was going to school, I needed a couple more years to get my mechanical engineering degree, and I was already in the business selling cars, and 
and I met this dealer, and he said, when you get out of school, so the, the, I was in a work-study program. Yeah. So I needed two more years, and I tried. I thought I'd go back to class, back to, to the state, but my career in the auto business had started. For those um, in the crowd that don't really understand or appreciate the sport, what about the sport is so appealing to you and to many hundreds of thousands or millions of people out there? Well, it, it's, I grew up in the muscle car era, so I, I love speed. I've raced boats, I've raced cars, I've held world records and on the water. So I have this need for speed, I guess. But I love the competition. And uh, I started very small, and but I've had, I was on Dale Earnhardt's podcast this morning, and I didn't realize that I've had 47 different drivers from Paul Newman, Tom Cruise. I've had all these people that drew in my cars. And I hadn't, I didn't, if you'd asked me that question, I would have said maybe 20. Wow. But uh, it, it's just being a car guy, loving performance cars, then the competition of, whether it's a racetrack or in the showroom, you know, trying to be number one. And I've been very blessed and fortunate to have guys like Jeff Gordon and Jimmy Johnson and Tim Richmond and, uh, you know, guys, Terry Labonte, they've won championships. And so uh, we are, about, I think, six or eight races from being the all-time leader in race wins. Our motor shops won 400, right at 500 now. And uh, we're sitting at 256. And, uh, but we're, in the current era, we by far have won more. But it's just, it's the watching young guys come in the sport as rookies like William Byron that learned how to race on a laptop. I mean, it's amazing. He's, I've never seen anybody do that before. How do you avoid complacency? Well, if, you, if you're complacent in racing, you, you, you're just left behind. We have like 65 engineers that work there at Motorsports, two PhDs, and they're constantly trying to get better. And in the automobile business, the same thing. If you don't stay ahead of the curve and you're not um, trying to be the first guy to come up with, whether it's a sales promotion or internet pricing or uh, whatever, you know, you, you, you'll get left behind. So it's a very, com any, any business is competitive these days. And so it, it's, it's, I think it's the desire and passion to be the best. Rick, I know that we, we talked a lot about our, you know, that what drives us in competition, and I know that you are a, um, I want to beat you type of competitor. Where does that come from? And tell us a, a, a story when that like almost drove you to the line. Oh God, there's so many of those, but uh, I, I think just if you're competing for some, uh, and someone else in the automobile business, you are what your record says you are. Yeah. If you've been the best, then you're gonna get the nod for an open point. It, the, com the competitiveness of, uh, of speed is something that I love, whether it's boats or cars. And uh, I, I just think I, I grew up at a time when it was hot rod magazines and, and uh, muscle cars were the thing. And uh, so, again, I just followed my passion and uh, it, it just, I still today love 
the, some of the new products coming out, like there's a, a new Ferrari that's coming out, all-wheel drive, it's 1,000 horsepower. Now, what do you do with 1,000 horsepower? I don't know, but yeah. you, it's fun to have. You've been known to revolutionize the sport because you always thought differently, and, and you, you, you're referring to that now in the way that you stay you know, competitive and not complacent. Uh, one of the more interesting things that I, you know, reading a lot about your journey has been around, you were the first owner, I believe, to, to own multiple teams. Um, how did you come up with that idea? What did people think when you brought it up? And what were the early challenges? Because now it's a no-brainer, but I'm sure back then people looked at you cross-eyed. Well, I was doing that in the automobile industry. And, and if you have smart people and people that are really good at what they do, and you spread that over two or three deals, you have people that grow and they need an opportunity. Right. So then you, you open a new spot and give them an opportunity to grow. So that's how we've grown the company. So I was in racing and I had one team and we did well. And then I had an opportunity to get another driver. Well, I liked the driver I had. So I started a second team. So it was driver led. It was driver crew chief. I mean, if you, if you see someone that's extremely good. And then my philosophy is best practices. So if you've got 50 people are working together, I'm going to be smarter than 10 people. So you take all the good ideas yeah. from each one and you put it together. That only works if they're willing to share. If, if, you, if, if they're on the same page and they're willing to share, then it works. On an average basis, how much is the car, the driver, the, the crew, let's call it the chief and, and, and the crew itself? Well, I think you can, you, if you have a really good car and a, a really good crew chief, pit crew, you can have a, 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 a level B driver and do pretty well. But, but you, you know, you, you cannot, uh, you, you've got to have the guy in the seat that can get that extra bit of it. So it's more, I'd say it's, it's, it's about 70-30 driver. 70-30 driver. So nothing to do with the car? No, no, you have to have the car, but if you had to choose, um, you know, I've seen, I've seen guys that were really good, like a Jeff Gordon, take a car and do things with it, and it, didn't have, it wasn't the best car that day. You know, it maybe was a top 10 car, so, but he won the race because of his ability. And you can get the best equipment and just get a mediocre driver, and he's, gonna, he's not going to win. There's a, I read this long article that NASCAR a couple years ago kind of changed a lot of rules, and um, they were all designed about making you less dominant. Uh, is, is that true? What were some of the big changes? And I'm sure you were pissed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they had tightened up the rules, and... Um, you know, we were able to do things with the body that you can't do now. We were designing different chassis that you can't do now. So <clears throat> it was a heyday for us. <clears throat> we won 17 out of 26 races. But then they started adjusting the rules to make it, you know, closer. So you couldn't do this and everybody had a better opportunity. But that still comes down to now, today, it's, what organization like manufacturer is, is Toyota getting more love than Chevrolet and the cars may not be equal 
So every year you get a new car, you get, you get an opportunity to make it better, but you just can't change it midstream. So we have been working on our new car. Toyota's had two shots since we had one. Ford's had two cars introduced since we had one. So next year we, we have an, a new Camaro in, in 2020 that is gonna be really good. So it's our shot to get a little bit better, maybe. There's a lot of tech and innovation in the NASCAR business. Tell us some of the stuff that, other than the car, what are some of the other stuff your engineers work at that you think is pretty fascinating? Well, it's, you know, they, they come up with so many different things, like, it's, uh, you know, they, they'll come up with a new geometry package that's totally with CFD and computer designed to, to maybe get the car a quarter of an inch lower. And, uh, but then again, as soon as you figure that out, NASCAR will come up with a rule to stop you. Really, when I, I see some of the engineers, like um, they have 3D modeling, and they're always working on engine parts just for uh, just maybe one horsepower. Like we carried 50 engines to Daytona that were within one horsepower, and that's pretty hard to do when you build it. So we have a lot of automation uh, machines that make the cylinder heads and uh, a lot of technology. We make our own pistons. We do all of that in-house. So we control the quality, but we also control the, uh, the knowledge and the technology by doing it ourselves. So when you're in a small box, you're stacking pennies. It's, it's not, you know, when I first started, <clears throat> engines would vary. 30 horsepower when they were 600. Yeah. Now they're 750, and they they can't leave the shop if they're not within four. It's um, it's changed a lot. <laughs> I think uh, people don't understand how great of an athlete uh, a, a driver is. Tell us more about that. The real freaks in terms of the regimens that they go through and how they take care of themselves. Well, Jimmy Jimmy Johnson runs, you know, eight miles on Monday morning after he's driven 500. And uh, the temperature in those cars are upwards of 120, in some cases 140 degrees. So if they drop something on the floor or their shoe could melt the floorboard. Now we have asbestos to keep it cool and we have a cool helmet that blows cold air on their head. They, and, and when they pit, when they stop, on a pit stop we give them ice bags to put in their, in their suit. But they have to be in really good shape to withstand the mental pressure and the heat exhaustion. And they lose about eight, eight pounds in a, in a four hours. It's, it's a grueling, uh, grueling test of being in good shape. Jimmy will eat certain foods, uh, drink certain liquids, and then when he gets in a playoff, he has another whole regimen of what he eats and drinks. But uh, to be mentally alert and uh, when you're running 200 miles an hour and you're two inches apart and if you, if you move the wrong way, you're going to create a big crash. So they, the, the, the mental pressure along with the fatigue of the heat, yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. How do they train for that mental toughness? Is there stuff that they intentionally do to get ready for that? I think some guys never get there. Uh, some guys, they can get to maybe the junior level 
and that they can't, they don't have the toughness or the, the hunger or that, or the talent to push them into that. You have to be a little crazy to go 200 miles an hour two inches away from somebody. Yeah, well, it's, uh, especially after you hit the wall at 200 a couple of times, you know, and you go back. But, uh, no, it, it's, they have a, we have uh, 13 trainers, a uh, couple that, that were in, with the NFL. We have weight trainers, and we have uh, different uh, guys with the food, but we have strength trainers and, and uh, cardio trainers. And so they work with the guys, and they have to put in so much cardio and weight training every week. And, it, and it's hard when you run, when you race on Sunday, and you, you come home, and then you've got to get ready and leave Thursday and go back and race Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So it's a young man's sport. So Rick, let's, uh, a little bit of advice for the crowd. If you, we have a lot of 28-year-olds, let's call it, uh, on average, uh, younger, some a little older, but what, what advice would you give yourself if you were in your 20s again? So this is from the heart. I was going down a road and had a great opportunity with a really good company like Westinghouse, but my heart wasn't in it. I hated to go to work. I, uh, I would go and watch the clock. Uh, you know, I did my job, but it wasn't my love. And when I started, I didn't really worry about money. I just said, this is what I love. This is what I want to do. So my advice would be follow your dream and do something you're passionate about. If you're not happy, we spend more, most of our life at work and find something you love and don't be, a, don't be afraid to take a chance, especially at your age. Uh, you've, uh, you can start again. My wife and I, we had this conversation when I guess I was uh, 26 or 7, 28 years old. And uh, we sold everything we had. We had a nice house, two Mercedes and BMW, and we sold everything, even our furniture to move to Bennettsville, South Carolina to get the first deal. And she drove an old Chevrolet with a busted windshield. But she said, we can start over. If it's what you want, you really want to do it, let's do it. So I, that's a long answer. But find something you love because you'll be good at it and the money will come. We sit here in five years and we're having a red talk number two. What, uh, what did you accomplish personally in motorsports and the dealership group? Well, I think, I think you, this company, and you have a reputation of being the best and very innovative and on the leading edge. And you've told me many times uh, you could, someone could be in, put you out of business tomorrow. And uh, I don't believe that because you're, too, you're thinking about the future. So for me and, and, and the team that we have, both in the auto industry and in motorsports, it's we have a good mix of very young, aggressive people. We have some old soldiers that say, "Wait, do do this? Try this. Let's try this again before we pull the trigger." Uh, and it's a combination of people that want to see it grow. So, I hope that in in ten years, I hope I'm still here, <laughs> but in ten years, I I want our automotive group to be looked at as one of the best. Not so much the largest, but the best, you know, and, and taking care of people, taking care of our, our employees, 
and setting all the records. And then in the motorsports operation, uh, I will not continue if I go out and I can't have a chance to win. To go just to show up, that's, I can't do that. It tears me up not to perform well. Rick, I, uh, I look up to you. I looked up to you before I met you. An honor to have you here. You're it's a dear an, friend. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. You're a, you've been an inspiration to me, what you've accomplished. This place is unbelievable. This was my first time in this building. But, uh, man, it it's blows your mind. So you guys have a tremendous reputation. You have a tremendous future ahead of you. You're in the business that's going to change the world and is changing the world, both in the auto industry and every other walk of life. So you're on the leading edge. You're on the spear of what's happening in the world. So I know you guys are going to do a great job and good luck in the future, no matter what you do. Thank you, Rick. There's probably not a greater champion than you out there. Here are the three things I learned as it relates to peak performance. Number one, car racing is unique in that every single split second matters. Every single horsepower matters. It's like stacking pennies, like you said. The reality that in life, we don't understand it, but it's the little things over long periods of time that make a big difference. Similar to what Andy said earlier this season, it's the culmination of a lot of little decisions that have the most impact on any outcome. Number two, in a world where technology is all the rave, it is amazing to see that 70% of the outcome is dependent on the driver. That's why we believe that a culture that attracts great people and retains great people is the only long-term differentiator. People ultimately make all the difference. And number three has to do with how hard it is to be a driver. You realize that there are no shortcuts. There's nothing easy. What they go through week in and week out is just a remarkable test of endurance and commitment. Success demands not just hard work, but quality preparation and a lot of invisible stuff that only a few are willing to do. Everybody wants to be great. So few are willing to do what it takes to do it. Rick shared his three things, but we want to know your takeaways as well. Tweet at Rick Elias to let us know your thoughts on this conversation. And be sure to check out additional content, videos, and more at our blog, threethings.redventures.com. Thanks for listening.